Well, good morning, Emmanuel. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 11. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. It's my desire this morning to preach to you from God's Word on the subject of the discipline and the grace and practice of prayer. I want to preach to you a sermon on the topic of prayer in the life of the Christian and the life of the church. But before I dive into our text this morning, I want to say a couple things that I, I think may be true of Emmanuel Church. The, the, the first thing I would say is I would just assume in, in a church our size, uh, there are bound to be saints, Christians, children of God, people who struggle deeply with prayer. It's just bound to be true in, in a church our size. It's just bound to be true all, because of Christian experience. There are bound to be people here that struggle deeply with prayer. If you belong to this group, you would admit that you pray very little. And you admit that the little that you do pray, you, you would probably say you don't pray well. You stammer. You repeat yourself. You lose your train of thought. You, you might even fall asleep at times. You might also say that you find little joy or pleasure in prayer. You pray because you, you, you know you're supposed to, you're commanded to, you know you ought to, but you don't find prayer to be a fulfilling practice in your walk with Christ. Well, if this is true of you, I by no means in this sermon want to expose you or, or mount any amount of guilt upon you. Rather, it's my sincere desire to help you from God's word. I also think there, there are probably many saints in Emmanuel Church who are engaging faithfully in the practice of prayer. And for you, you people in this group, my, my desire today is that you would persevere in your faithfulness and that this sermon would inspire greater and more, more, more consistent faithfulness in the, in the most important work of prayer. So, so that's some things I think and it's not really too important what I think. The older I get, the more I realize it doesn't matter too much what I think. What I do know is that every Christian I have ever met feels they need to grow in the discipline of prayer. I would argue that every Christian on the face of the earth and in the history of the church needed or needs to grow in their prayer life. And if you happen to think, if you happen to be a person that, that think you've, you've mastered the discipline of prayer... Please, give me a call this week, because I think that's hilarious, and I need more people in my life that can make me laugh. That's just hilarious that you think you've mastered the discipline of prayer. Brothers and sisters, though, in all seriousness, prayerlessness, it is a sin. It's a neglect that's not healthy in the Christian life. So please, by all means, confess this sin to God. Ask the Lord to help you in prayer. Today, I don't want you just to be reminded that you don't pray enough or that you don't pray well enough, but rather my desire is, is that you grow. A wise older pastor in my life told me the other day, it, it's, it's not difficult to, to create conviction regarding prayer, but it's far more harder to actually help people's prayers habits. So shame on me if this sermon merely has the effect of, of making you feel like a, like a crummier Christian. That's not my desire. I want us to be helped by God's word, and I want Emmanuel Church to be a faithful and spirit-filled, prayerful people. So with this in mind, let's read Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you pray with me? Father, it's the need of this hour for us to hear from Your Word, so we ask that You would kindly, by Your Spirit, impress upon us the truths of this text, that we would grow in prayer. We pray all of this in the precious, sure name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, it's my desire this morning to focus primarily on that last verse of the text, Luke 11, verse 13, and I'm going to read it again. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I have three points this morning. Point one, the source of prayer. Point two, the blessing of prayer. And point three, the practice of prayer. So the source, the blessing, or you could say the gift. And then third, the practice of prayer. Consider first with me the source of prayer. When I say the source of prayer, I'm referring to the one who, to whom we pray, the one to whom we address in prayer, that is our Heavenly Father. Emmanuel Church, prayer is a spiritual grace that is grown in the context of relationship. Prayer is a spiritual grace that is grown in the context of relationship. Jesus' teaching about prayer in this section centers around the theme of God's relationship to his children. If Christians, brothers and sisters, if Christians are to understand anything about prayer, they must understand to whom they are addressing and their relationship to that person they are addressing. Brothers and sisters, God is our Father. He's our Father. This fundamental reality revolutionizes prayer. It informs the very, the very essence, the, the instinct and practice of prayer. It, it formulates what prayer is and it also regulates everything, our daily practice of prayer. And in this text, this major theme of, of God's fatherhood, it's presented in the form of a, of a lesser to greater argument or construction. I've forgotten any Latin that I've learned in my life, uh, but the, the technical name for this argument is an a minori or ad maius argument. I know I butchered that, but it's a lesser to greater argument. Jesus speaks of three relationships in Luke 11. He speaks of the relationship of an earthly friend, and he speaks of an earthly father, and he speaks of our heavenly father, that is, God. The idea is that Jesus speaks of, of first, the earthly friend, and that friend, he'll, he'll grant your petition, but only if, he's, only if he's badgered. And then he mentions the earthly father, and the father, better than the friend, he'll answer the request of his children, but it's by virtue of his relationship to his children. And then he extends to the greatest, the greater, that is God the Father, how much more will your heavenly Father answer the request and give the Spirit to his children, to those who ask him? This is a progression from lesser to greater. Children, do you know what the greater than symbol is? It's a math symbol. It's a greater than or, or less than symbol. It looks like, like this. I don't know how clear that comes out, but it looks like, like this. Uh, the idea is that uh, three is greater than two, or, or four is greater than three. Uh, many adults and children get confused as to, to which side of the greater than symbol does the, the greater object go on. You know, I always got confused about this. When I was a kid, my, my mom explained it to me such that uh, uh, Zach... 
the, the greater than symbol, it looks kind of like an alligator mouth. Looks like, a, like an alligator mouth. And Zach, if, if you're an alligator and, and you're hungry, you're gonna, and you have the choice between a, a smaller animal to eat or a bigger animal to eat, you're going to face that bigger animal and eat that bigger animal. Now, parents, I, I would encourage you to pick less frightening illustrations to prove math concepts to your kids. And I would also say this sermon has nothing to do with alligators other than to make the point that Jesus is making a comparison between lesser objects and greater objects. And there is a flow of thought in the text. The earthly father, his relationship is, is, is better than the earthly friend's relationship to his friend. And of course, the heavenly father's relationship is better than the earthly father. Say, lesser to greater. There's a progression in the quality of relationship that deeply impacts the nature of petition. Now, friends, we must understand that because Jesus uses a, a lesser to greater argument in Luke 11, that this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean he's arguing that the fatherhood of God, this enormous concept, it just merely improves prayer. Like, it, it turns prayer or petition into prayer or petition 2.0. Like, it's, it's worked out the bugs. No, no, it does much more than that. The reality of God's fatherhood revolutionizes prayer. And it changes the very essence of our petition to God. I think that the best way to, for us to understand this and for us to get in this text to understand what Jesus is saying is to think of it from the disciples' perspective. Imagine if you were one of the disciples hearing Jesus' words. Better yet, imagine if you were the disciple that asked the question to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. If you were a pious Jew in the first century, you would have at never, no point would you have ever been taught to pray to God as Father. At no point would you have been taught to address God as Father. Listen to this. In the entire Old Testament, the entire 39 books of the Old Testament, God is, is attributed, is, uses the title Father 15 times. In the entire Old Testament, the title of Father is attributed to God 15 times. And you know what? None of those references are in the context of prayer. God is never addressed as Father in prayer in the Old Testament. So can you see how revolutionary this concept is, would be, would have been to the disciples? This, this, this contrast and intimacy that Jesus is presenting in the Old Testament, the name most often used, to God, used for God is, uh, is Yahweh. Uh, you, might, you might know it as Jehovah. It's used over 4,000 times in the Old Testament. And in fact, in Jesus' day, Jews had such, such reverence for God that, that it was their practice that when they would read the Scriptures and they would come across the name of Yahweh, they wouldn't even say it out loud. In fact, they would say something like, like Lord or, or, or Adonai but they wouldn't say Yahweh out loud. Can you appreciate the contrast? Can you appreciate the contrast in intimacy? Jesus, or, or God in the new covenant, is no less holy, but he wants to be known as Father. Brothers and sisters, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God as Father is made profoundly clear. Well has J.I. Packer said that Father is the Christian name for God. This is wonderful. He writes in, in Knowing God, he says, in the New Testament, something has been added. A, a new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. He says, father is the name by which they call him. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to God, but on the boldness and confidence which with believers may approach him. Now listen to what he writes. He says, To those who are Christ, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we can be assured 
That this enormous theme of God's fatherhood is not just the the theme of this text in Luke 11, but indeed it is the theme of the entire New Testament. And for you who need to grow in prayer, let this truth condition your prayer life. This changes everything. Prayer is a family conversation in which God warmly invites you to participate, to engage with him. The Apostle John, he beautifully writes in 1 John 3, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Interesting, he doesn't stop there, that just we're called children of God. He says, and this is what we are. Brothers and sisters, Emmanuel Church, God's fatherhood results in the material fact that we can approach God with confidence. Like It results in that material fact, oh, now I can approach God in confidence, but it also regulates the the daily practice and the the instinct of prayer. Brothers and sisters, I believe the, the, the main reason many of us fail in prayer and I speak as a, as a fellow traveler here, the, the, the main reason many of us fail in prayer, whether it's, it's negligence of the duty or a sense of meaninglessness in prayer, is, is we fail to realize who we are addressing in prayer and our relationship to that individual. Friends, growth in prayer will, will rarely follow mere, mere focus on the practice of prayer. Do you know that? Like, like, just by getting good prayer habits in, growth in prayer will nearly, will not usually follow just focusing on that practice. And by all means, focus on the practice. Figure out the best methods of praying. Get up early. Make lists. Read the scriptures back to the Lord. But listen, all of that will be fruitless. All of your efforts will be fruitless if it's divorced from an ever-present sense that God is your Father an ever-present sense of his posture towards you. Friends, he is our Father. And it's through focus on the source, that is, God the Father in prayer, that fruit in prayer will follow. Point one, the source of prayer. Consider with me point two, the blessing of prayer. The blessing of prayer. And when I refer to the blessing of prayer, I'm speaking of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, he says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? To those who ask Him. The gift is the Spirit. It's interesting that the parallel text in, in Luke, to Luke 11 is found in Matthew 7. And Matthew 5 through 7 form the Sermon on the Mount. And there, in Matthew 7, Jesus says that our Heavenly Father, He's pleased to give good gifts to his children. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit. He says he's pleased to give good gifts to his children. And then in our text, in Luke 11, Jesus says our Heavenly Father is pleased to give the Holy Spirit to his children. Now, differences like this should never give us pause or concern about the nature of the New Testament. The truth is that this reflects is just that Jesus, more than likely, definitely taught about prayer throughout his ministry. He taught about prayer throughout his life. We see that all over the Gospels. Just think about this. I'm preaching a sermon right now on prayer. This isn't the first sermon I've taught on prayer, and I'm certain it won't be the last sermon that I, teach, that I preach on prayer. So, so though the Holy Spirit and, and good gifts, though you got good gifts in Matthew 7, Holy Spirit in Luke 11, though those are two different concepts, I actually believe there, there is considerable overlap between the two ideas. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is at the heart of everything that we need and want. He's at the heart of of everything that we need. The Spirit is God's quickening agent to bless His children. The Spirit is the par excellence of God's good gifts. And moreover, it is through the Spirit that God provides every blessing to His children. And what do I mean by that? I mean, think in Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 6, we're commanded to pray at all times in the Spirit. We're commanded to pray at all times in the Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 15, he says, uh, calls on Christians to pray by the love of the Holy Spirit. Then in this text, 
Jesus says God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So you got in the Spirit, pray by the Spirit, and then God gives the Holy Spirit in prayer. So, so what this means is that the Spirit is both the, the motivation, the, the, the driving force, the power of our prayers, and the gift and product that we receive from prayers. Do you see that, the difference there? So it's as if the, the Spirit in prayer, it, it's like the, a trip to the gas station that you make in your car. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, well if you're driving a, a vehicle to the gas station to get more fuel, what do you need to get you to the gas station? You need fuel. You need fuel to power your engine so you can get to the gas station to get more fuel. So you see, in the prayer, in prayer, the spirit is both the fuel of prayer and the destination and goal and, and gift of prayer. So brothers and sisters, you can see that the Holy Spirit is, is, is marvelously interwoven in every aspect of prayer. And you might be thinking, well, Zach, that, that sounds great, but what on earth does that mean, and what does that mean for my life? What does the Spirit actually provide me? It's a good question. And I would say first that the Spirit's ministry is, is quite mysterious, and we're not called to explain the ins and outs of everything that the Spirit does, but Scripture is quite clear Scripture is quite clear about several things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of Christians. And I want to just highlight five of those for you. I want to highlight five things that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit that God is pleased to provide us in prayer, what the Spirit does in the life of Christians. First, God's Spirit strengthens Christians to proclaim the Word of God with boldness. He strengthens Christians to proclaim the Word of God with boldness. Uh, many people know Luke is, uh, was a Gentile, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he is the only Gentile author of the New Testament, and is probably the only Gentile author of, of all of Scripture. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and Luke and Acts form uh, uh, a huge portion of the New Testament. Well, Luke writes of the apostles' ministry in Acts 4, he says, when they had prayed, Acts 4.31, he says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were able, they were praying, the Spirit came and filled them, and they were able to proclaim the word of God with all boldness. What gave them the ability to proclaim the word of God? It was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, I, I think this text does have some particular relevance to, to pastors and to, to the apostles in their context, but there's no reason it doesn't apply to every person with the Spirit. This text has relevance for every Christian. If you have the Spirit of God in you, if you are a child of God, if you've been changed by grace, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you can be filled with more of the Holy Spirit so that you can proclaim the Word of God boldly. You can proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus, he, he, he came in flesh, and he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross, a Roman cross, and he rose again. And more than this, He's ascended and seated at the right hand of God where he intercedes on our behalf and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You can proclaim the word of God with boldness by the power given to us with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, God's Spirit fills Christians with wisdom and opposition. Spirit fills Christians with wisdom and opposition. Luke, he writes in Acts 6, describing Stephen, and Stephen was the, the first martyr of the church, describes Stephen's ministry. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, and doing great wonders, and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was ministering to some people, and this invited some opposition from those people and the authorities that heard him preach. Well, listen, listen to how he responds. It says, it says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Capital S, spirit with which he was speaking. How was Stephen able to, to endure opposition? 
And how was he given wisdom to endure that opposition? It was the Holy Spirit that filled Stephen. Third, God's Spirit helps Christians to mortify their sin. God's Spirit helps Christians to mortify their sin. The Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans 8, 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I guess I have to say, we, we, we so often can glance over a phrase like that, but that phrase deserves attention. But what does Paul go on to say? He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Puritan, John Owen, he, he wrote an entire treatise on that one verse, Romans 8, 13. John Owen, his book, it's titled The Mortification of Sin in the Life of the Believer. And it's there where he famously said that we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must be killing our sin, otherwise it will be destroying and eating away at us and preventing us from growing in holiness. And look, this idea that we should be killing sin or will be killing you, it's indeed true. But listen, how will that killing be accomplished? How will this great slaughter of sin be conducted in your life? Well, friend, it, it will be by putting on the Holy Spirit. It will be the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It will be, as 8, 3, Romans 8.13 says, by the Spirit that we put to death sin in our lives. Fourth, God's Spirit assures us of salvation. God's Spirit assures us of salvation, specifically of our adoption. Again, from Romans 8, Paul, he writes in Romans 8, 14, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Brothers and sisters, being led by the Holy Spirit is, is part of our family resemblance to God. It's part of our family characteristics that reveal that we all belong to God. My son Ezra is a baby, and uh, he just turned eight months uh, uh, a few days ago, and he is changing every day, and uh, we can tell he is our son because he, he sort of looks like us, and thankfully, he looks much more like my wife than he looks like me. He has her face. He has her characteristics. I think the only thing he's inherited from me so far is a violent calic on the back of his head. His hair's ridiculous like mine. He'll have to endure that burden of that hair growth pattern the, the rest of his life. But, but why am I saying all this? The, the point is, you can tell that my baby Ezra, that, that he is our son because he, 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 he resembles us. His physical characteristics make plain the reality that he is our son. Well, friends, this is what spiritual living is like. This is what living by the Spirit is like. When we are led by the Spirit, we live spiritually, and God uses this to make plain that we belong to Him, and our hearts overflow and know that we are children of God. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Paul goes on in Romans 8, verse 15, to say, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, and oh, how we're prone to fear. But it doesn't come from God or the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. God's Spirit assures us of our salvation and our sonship. And fifth, Perhaps even more important, God's Spirit causes us to behold Christ, to behold the glory of God in Christ. The Holy Spirit, Christian, helps you see Jesus, helps you to behold the Lord. I, I mentioned Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And Stephen, in Acts 7, after he's proclaimed God's word boldly, after he's invited such opposition that the people were about to stone him, 
Listen to what Luke says about Stephen. It says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, in the moment of of opposition, the moment of martyrdom, moments before his death, could behold the glory of Christ. How? From being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know this experience, it's, it's, it's not unique to Stephen, but it's something that Christians can experience daily. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed and to the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is so much that is mysterious about that text that we can't get into, and some things that we will never understand but from that text. But what can we know? Christian, you can know that the Holy Spirit gives you sight. The Holy Spirit gives you sight to see and to savor Christ. And what does that seeing and savoring of Christ do in your life? It changes you. It changes you. It gives you more new affections for Christ, new affections to hate the sin in your life. And you can grow in holiness by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Changes us from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit is God's precious blessing to us in prayer. Jesus tells us in in Luke 11 that our Heavenly Father is pleased. He's pleased. He's so ready and eager and willing to give us the Holy Spirit. By way of application on this point of, of the blessing of prayer, I must say again, how precisely the Spirit works in our life, I think, remains a mystery to me. I don't think we're called to fully explain the ins and outs of of the ministry of the Spirit. Yet Jesus wants us to know, Jesus wants us to know in Luke 11 that, that God is pleased to work through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is at the heart of everything you want and need, Christian. Maybe you find yourself watching this this morning and you're plagued with anxiety. You're plagued with anxiety maybe about sin in your life. Maybe you're plagued with anxiety about the future. Maybe you're plagued with anxiety about your aging parents. Maybe you're plagued with anxiety about your children who don't know Christ. Well, what do you need? Christian, what do you need? You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to give you a peace that that surpasses all understanding. Maybe God has laid someone on your heart this week and in this coronavirus season that you need to share the gospel with. You're seeing more of your neighbors. People's guards are down. They're they're ready. They're poised. They can hear the gospel. and, And God's laid someone on your heart to share the gospel with. Well, what do you need? You, you, you sense a, a, a feeling of, of inadequacy. I, I, I'm so ill-equipped to share the gospel. I'm so weak. I, I, I stammer. I, I don't get all the, the phrases right. I don't know how to handle objections to the gospel. I, I'm, so, I'm so inadequate to share it. Well, what do you need? Friend, Christian, brothers and sisters, you need the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit can, can fill you to proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly to a lost, sick, and dying world. I trust there are many listening to this who, who, who struggle with remaining and recurring sin. Friend, you can change. That sin that plagues your soul, that you feel like you just can't shake, listen, you can change. You don't have to make peace treaties with that sin. You don't have to accept that this is the way you have to live the rest of your life. You can experience victory over that sin, but it will happen through the Spirit. 
will happen through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. John Owen said, he he said, he said, let not man, he says, let not man thinks he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. John Owen, he he imagines there a a, a battlefield where you have just uh, uh, defeated the enemy of your sins, whatever whatever particular sin, and you're walking over that that sin's dead body. Do, Do you want to? Friend, walk over the bellies of your lust. That's a part of my past, that sin. Do you want to progress in holiness? Do you want to triumph over sin? Well, friend, this will only be accomplished. It will only be accomplished by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus assures us that our Heavenly Father is pleased to give us the Holy Spirit if we ask. And this brings me to my third point, the practice of prayer. We've considered the source of prayer. We've considered the blessing of prayer. Now consider, last with me, the source or the the practice of prayer. Luke 11, verse 13. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? To those who who ask him. It's clear that Jesus, he he didn't just emphasize that God is our Father just to to warm our hearts, though it does warm our hearts. It's gloriously true and relevant that God is our Father, but that's not the only reason Jesus lets us know. It's it's apparent and and clear that Jesus didn't talk about the blessings of the Holy Spirit from prayer just just to warm our hearts. No, no. He wants to motivate you to pray. Jesus is is giving us a peek at at the inner working of the triune God to compel us to pray. It's like he's pulling back the curtain. We're kind of seeing how the, the Trinity works, that God the Father gives his children the Holy Spirit. It's as if Jesus has just laid before us a delicious feast and is saying, all you have to do is come to the table. It's all we have to do, but brothers and sisters, we must come to the table. Should we want our Heavenly Father to give us more of the Holy Spirit and and good things in this life, we must ask Him. We need to approach our Father regularly in prayer. So I want to close this sermon with, with three brief practical exhortations from Luke 11 to encourage our prayer life. These are practical instructions to improve your prayer life. First, pray deliberately. Pray deliberately. In Matthew 6 and Luke 11, we're we're given the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Uh, We're given the, the, the Lord's Prayer. So it's not as if Jesus doesn't give us the words to say. So you don't have to approach God in prayer without any sort of marching orders. Jesus has given them to us. He's told us the types of things we're supposed to bring to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, he, he, he prays that God's name would be hallowed, that the, that the kingdom of God would be advanced. He teaches us to pray for our daily needs. He teaches us to confess our sins and ask that we be led away from temptation, that we forgive others. Now look, it's obvious that, that the Lord's Prayer, it, it's not exhaustive, right? It doesn't cover everything that we can pray for. It doesn't. It doesn't cover, uh, say, Thanksgiving. It doesn't really cover you know, lament and bringing your lament and struggles before the Lord. It, it doesn't cover that. But listen, though, though the Lord's Prayer is not exhaustive, it is categorical. It is following a pattern. So my simple point is that we must be deliberate in prayer. Christian, you must have a, follow a pattern in the practice of prayer. Don't go to prayer without a plan. So many of us, we, we go to prayer, we have no idea what we're supposed to bring and the types of things we're supposed to say to God in prayer. Don't go into prayer without a plan. Think through what it is you want and, and need and 
and, and, and ask God and come to God as a child to a perfect father. For some of us, this may mean that, that we need to use lists when we pray. I know this is what I need. I need to pull out that directory and pull out my notes in that directory with specific petitions for specific families and people in our church. Some of us, we need to pull out that, that, that missions binder that we have with, with missionaries of Emmanuel Church and specific petitions that they've asked for us to lift up to our Heavenly Father. For some of us, this, this might be we, we need to comb through the Bible and see all the manifold prayers that we see in Scripture. We've got the prayers of the Lord Jesus himself. We've got the prayers of the Apostle Paul. We've got the prayers of the book of Psalms. Use Scripture, friends. Regardless, we must pray deliberately. We must have a practice and a pattern in prayer. Secondly, pray in community. Pray in community. Prayer is a discipline that, that's best developed and, and flourishes in discipling. It's in the context of discipling that, that prayer is, is, a, is a developing discipline. I wonder if you notice the way Luke 11 starts. It, it's wonderful how Luke 11 starts. It's easy to miss it. Verse 1, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. So the disciples were able to see Jesus praying. It says, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, you'll know that, that Jesus' priority of a prayer is just an enormous theme throughout the gospel of Luke. Jesus is, is constantly seen praying, and praying often before, before major events in his life and ministry. And then he's, he's, he's constantly teaching on prayer. But it's not just Jesus who was known for prayer and known for teaching about prayer, but also the, the John the Baptist was known for teaching about prayer and known for his prayer life. John has taught his disciples to pray. So Christian, can you identify with the disciples' request? This disciple who, who came to Jesus at the beginning of Luke 11. Can you identify? He says, Lord, teach us to pray. Perhaps he knew he was a failure in prayer. Perhaps he, he had saw something of the intimacy that, that John and Jesus had with God in prayer. And he wanted some of that. But we don't know what his exact experience with prayer was. But what we do know that he sought Jesus for help. He sought help from Christ so that he could grow in prayer. So Christian, by way of application on this point, banish the notion that the only way for you to grow in prayer is on your own. Banish that notion because it's not true. Poor prayer practice, it, it needs not to be worked out alone. Think of it just like any spiritual problem in your life or any spiritual discipline in your life. Seek help from others. Seek help from people in your life. And I would say first, do what this disciple did. I would encourage you, ask the Lord Jesus to do the same thing that this disciple asked. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I would also say, use the God-given community of the church to grow in prayer. This is so simple, but so many of us miss this. Seek help from other Christians. As God's children, the church should be the most natural place where we learn to pray. When the church gathers, it, it's a training room for heaven. It's preparing us for the weight of glory. It's preparing us for heaven. When we gather, we should be learning from each other. How do we approach God in prayer? How do we join the family conversation? I would encourage you, if, if there's a Christian in your life that you just sense your, your heart is drawn out to God when you hear them pray, ask that brother or sister to help you. I assure you, they won't think less of you. Ask that brother or sister, hey, you, 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 when you pray, you seem like you're intimate with God, like you're communing with Him. Help me. I want to learn how to do that. As a church, let's be prepared to help others grow in the discipline of prayer. Come to prayer meetings. Join our family conversations with our Heavenly Father. You're not alone in growth in prayer. You're not alone in wanting to become a 
greater and more powerful prayer warrior. Friend, pray in community. So pray deliberately. Pray in community. And lastly, pray persistently. Pray persistently. Prayer is a habit honed through persistence. Christian, persistence matters in prayer. Jesus makes this plain from Luke 11, our text today, but he also makes it plain in places like Luke 18 with persistent widow and Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. Persistence matters in prayer. It matters In Luke 11, specifically, Jesus speaks of a friend who grants his uh, his friend a request for loaves because the friend was persistent. He was unwilling at first, but even as a crummy friend, as a not-so-great friend, he was willing to oblige the request because his friend kept badgering him, kept persistently pleading with him. And the idea, the idea is how much more is our heavenly Father disposed to bless us in prayer? Jesus, he he continues this idea of persistence by by calling his disciples to ask and to seek and to knock. These motifs, these images, they're, they're, they're persistent gestures. Jesus, he says in Luke 11, verse 9, he says, I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us certainty. He offers certainty of blessing in prayer. What we ask is answered. What we seek will be found. Where we knock, it will be answered. These ask, seek, knock, these are not so much commands as they are invitations. The invitations that, that we to experience the blessings of relationship with God. We can expect God's blessing if we continue in prayer because of God's posture towards us. Because of our relationship to Him as our Heavenly Father. We need to be persistent. I have a friend who not long ago, he was in a foreign country, and he was in that foreign country, and he was actually mugged. He was, he was robbed, and he ended up being fine. But, but what was most troubling about the, the whole experience was that it happened in broad daylight. So he was mugged in broad daylight, right in front of police officers. So he's being mugged. He sees the police officers. The police officer sees him. He calls out to them, and the police officers do nothing. And that country that he was in, it happens to be notoriously corrupt in terms of law enforcement. And sadly, the, the, the citizens of that country, they have little expectation of, of any help or support from police officers. They, they can't trust officers to do justice. They can't officers to protect citizens. They, they can't trust any of that. So this didn't help keep my friend from calling out to the officers, yet the officers did nothing. Now, I'm thankful that I live in a country and I live in a town where generally I can expect that if I was being robbed and police officers saw me, that they would intervene. I can generally expect most officers are going to do that. But imagine, imagine if I was out on Robin Hood Road, noon on a Sunday afternoon, and I was being robbed. And imagine if I could see officers close by. And imagine if I said nothing. Imagine if I didn't call out to those officers to do anything and just let myself get robbed. That would be insane, right? That would be crazy. Why? Because those officers, it's their job to fight bad guys. It's their job to intervene. It's their job to protect citizens. It's their job to promote justice. How could I not call on them for help? Well, friends, the the, the illustration, it, it breaks down. But when it comes to our needs, when it comes to our 
desires, our, our needs. And whether or not we make them known to God, we need to realize He's right there. He's right there. And He's ready and He's eager and He's earnest and willing to help His children. He's willing to intervene. He's willing to bless and He's prepared to bless us with His Holy Spirit and good things the Scriptures tells us. How can we not call on Him? Could it be that we have not because we ask not? We don't ask, we don't seek, we don't knock. Could it be? Brothers and sisters, we must be persistent in prayer. We must be faithful in prayer. And and why do we need to be persistent in prayer? Because the Lord Jesus, He assures us He assures us, he promises us with certainty that we can expect blessings from our Heavenly Father. We can expect our Father to give us the Holy Spirit. And I just have to say, if if you're watching this video today and, and you're not a Christian, that means that you actually are not a child of God. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, God doesn't look at you as his child. His posture towards you is not one of father to a loving child. But I want you to know, by the power of the gospel, that all can change. You can become a Christian. You can pass from death to life. You can be saved and have your sins blotted out. And look, Jesus in Luke 11, he promises He promises his disciples with with ironclad certainty that they can expect blessing from their Father in heaven. And he offers the same types of promises to unbelievers if they trust in him. Lord Jesus says, come. He says, come, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will by no means cast out. That is an ironclad clad promise that we can take to the bank. So my lost friend, would you trust in Christ today? Emmanuel Church, would we be faithful to ask and seek and knock and to pray to our Heavenly Father? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the richness of blessings you assure your saints that you assure your people. We pray in this moment that you would bless the preaching of your word, that we would grow more faithful in the ever-important discipline of prayer. But we pray that prayer would not just be a discipline, but it would be a grace and a delight in our lives. Lord, give us more growth in this area. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to gather once more as God's people to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.